the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Hi, Justin. How's it going, Lindsay? Well, after four years of being with you on this podcast, it's it's going along pretty swimmingly. It's a, a celebration of sorts here today on the podcast. Four years we've been doing this today, which is kind of crazy to me. Are you sick of me yet? I'm not sick of you. But I'm not. You, you can be. It's been a fun ride. I'm glad that we continued on with this, especially that the uh, pandemic didn't break our stride. This time last year, we were still recording remotely. Yeah, yeah, which we did not enjoy. That was a weird one, yeah. And I'd like to think over these last four years that we've done a wide variety of movies in our selection. We've tried to always stay on the path of a movie that both of us really, really enjoy and try to do break down the movie, not have it be a total love fest, but... You know, we want this to be a positive podcast. I think that's something that we've always had in mind since the beginning. I feel like we've stayed on that trajectory. And I was trying to think of what movie do we do for our four-year anniversary? Uh, What's significant to us? We occasionally get requests for movies. We got a lot of requests for Evil Dead, so we did that one. This is a movie over the last several years we've gotten many requests for. When I think of an increment of four years, I immediately think of high school, like people who started high school when we began this podcast or have now graduated, you know, four years is, doesn't seem like a long amount of time, but when you're in high school, it seems like this like insane amount of time. And so The Breakfast Club, it makes perfect sense to do this movie for our anniversary episode. And this is a movie that uh, has really resonated with me for like so many years. I loved it when I was in high school, even though it came out when I was a kid. And Lindsay, like myself, you love John Hughes. We did Weird Science, uh, early, early on when we started the podcast. Yeah. But this one, I think we had talked about several times that out of all his movies resonates with us the most and is one of his more genuine movies where things really click. The writing is really, really exceptional. That's one of the strongest aspects to me about John Hughes. And it is certainly exemplified in The Breakfast Club. I wish I could say I remember the first time I saw this movie, but it seems like it's been a movie that I've seen on TV countless times throughout my life that I find myself being drawn into this very familiar, I mean, not necessarily detention, but this familiar atmosphere. I know these characters maybe wasn't an exact copy of these people, but certainly a blend of them. And whenever we pick a movie for the podcast, sometimes I haven't seen the movie in a long time. I've certainly Mm. seen The Breakfast Club more often than a lot of movies that we talk about. I always wonder how it's going to hit me. And this movie certainly had the same pull that it's always had on me where it sucks me in with a bunch of humor and great quotable lines and then really gets heavy. The characters start opening up. And that's something that not a lot of movies, I think, have the capability to do where 
you can have a lighthearted, funny movie that gets ridiculous at times, but then you actually start caring about these characters and you see their relationship develop so quickly, which is, I think, really hard to do in movies where you have so little time and you have to convince an audience that like these characters are immediately caring about each other. They're clicking they're They have great chemistry. And this one just it's oozes off the screen. Hughes does a really smart thing by starting this movie off showing us, not telling us what these kids experiences are with their parents who drop them off or don't drop them off for detention. We immediately understand a little bit about their home life and then coming into this detention world and it looks like five different people from completely different worlds all coming together. So of course you're going to think none of these guys are going to get along or have anything in common but that's like the beautiful thing about this movie and rolls into the entire message and themes behind it. And I'm glad you brought up that The Breakfast Club switches kind of from comedy to going way more serious than you might expect it to. That tonal shift is really woven throughout the entire movie. It's going to be one of the top that we explore and the discussions coming up, as well as how this is considered a teen movie, but it also strays away from traditional teen movie type setups that we've come to know in subsequent years, and even what Hughes himself played upon. This is a much more mature version of what became known as a teen movie. Yeah, and we'll get into some of the early development of this movie with Hughes writing and how he did become this sort of signature voice for teen movies, his chemistry and his vibe with the actors. We love talking about the cast. We love an ensemble movie. I say it every time, but this was an era of some of the brightest young stars Hollywood had seen in a while. Of course, a legendary movie like this that is beloved. Also from the 80s, a lot of movies from this time don't come without having problematic elements. So we're going to talk about some things that maybe make it stand out in the light of 2022. And there's no way that we can talk about The Breakfast Club or a John Hughes movie for that matter without discussing the music involved in making the movie. Yeah, I just think it's so seldom now that you have a movie that comes out with a soundtrack attached that's as well known as the movie itself and so many great songs on this. And this is, you know, it's my jam to like, we're we're doing a movie (laughs) and for two weeks I can just kind of like have the soundtrack on like a loop and this one from start to finish so many great songs and a song that should be played out by now you know we'll talk about it but simple minds don't you forget about me i I can't get enough of it it's been 35 years and i'm still not sick of this song and what a perfect time of year to crank this song put your windows down crank the breakfast club soundtrack i mean i might sound facetious right now but i'm completely serious two soundtracks i've been cranking um to talk a little bit about our picks of the week, another great soundtrack movie, Judgment Night, that ah, I'm doing as my pick of the week, okay. connecting it to Breakfast Club via actor Emilio Estevez. I actually think the soundtrack is more well-known than the movie Judgment Night itself, <laughs> but I'll get into talking about that. What was your pick of the week? Well, I connected by actor generally how I do with these picks of the week, but this movie that was certainly formative in my high school years for a different reason than The Breakfast Club, but that was High Art starring Ali Sheedy. That's a good pick. That's one I'd, I'd just kind of forgotten about that movie, but I'd watched it when I was in college, and then I hadn't really thought about that movie in a long time. I needed to do a, a revisit of that one. During those glory years of art yeah. house films? It was a very, yeah, it was like a very arty, well, you know, yeah. in the title <laughs> itself, but one where you kind of felt like more, you when it was over, you're like, hey, I just saw a... Uh, you seen the the new indie film High Arts, you know, and you kind of felt like hoity toity yeah, even you saying just felt it. Like kind of fancy, yeah. <laughs> was always we'll round things out with our Murray moment, but before we get into our first clip, which is going to be really difficult for me to just find one quotable clip to queue up, I'm just going to have a hard time figuring out 
what clip I want to use for Breakfast Club. Lindsay, can you give us a, a breakdown, a brief, your interpretation of what this movie's about? Five students of Shermer High School in the Chicago suburbs come together for Saturday morning detention. What brought them there, we don't know just yet, but it'll be uncovered. All five hail from the convenient corners of the high school world. A jack, a brain, a troublemaker, the goody-goody, and the wallflower. Sequestered away by their power-hungry, resentful principal sworn to silence for eight hours, the group can't help but interact, mainly facilitated by the rebel of the group. What they assume about each other as people may hold some truth, but they soon find they've got more in common, and that this one day might forever readjust their perceptions of each other moving forward. Thanks for that summary. We'll go to a clip from Bruxist Club. We'll be back. We'll talk about it. What do you say we close that door? We can't have any kind of party. We're burning, checking us out every few seconds. You know, the door's supposed to stay open. So what? So why don't you just shut up? There's four other people in here, you know? God, you can count. See, I knew you had to be smart to be a, a wrestler. Who the hell are you to judge anybody anyway? Really? You know, Bender, you don't even count. I mean, if you disappear forever, it wouldn't make any difference. You may as well not even exist at this school. Well, I'll just run right out and join the wrestling team. <laughs> Maybe the prep club, too. Student council. No, they wouldn't take you. I'm hurt. You know why guys like you knock everything? Oh, this should be stunning. It's because you're afraid. Oh, God, you Richies are so smart. That's exactly why I'm not heavy in activities. You're a big coward. I'm in a math club. So you're afraid that they won't take you. You don't belong, so you just have to dump all over it. Well, wouldn't have anything to do with you activities people being assholes now, would it? Well, you wouldn't know. You don't even know any of us. Well, I don't know any lepers either, but I'm not going to run out and join one of their fucking clubs. So let's watch the mouth, huh? I'm in the physics club, too. Excuse me a sec. What are you babbling about? Well, what I had said was I'm in the math club, uh, the Latin club, and the physics club. Physics club. Hey, Jerry, do you belong to the physics club? That's an academic club. So? So academic clubs aren't the same as other kinds of clubs. Ah, but the dorks like him, they are. What do you guys do in your club? In physics, well, we, we, uh, we talk about physics, uh, properties of physics. So it's sort of social, demented and sad, but social. Now, a little later, we'll get into John Hughes' full-on pop culture takeover of the 80s. But when John Hughes was starting out, he was a joke writer, sold some jokes to the likes of like Rodney Dangerfield and Joan Rivers, but eventually made his way into advertising as a copywriter. He was making a pretty good living for himself, but John Hughes in several interviews made it sound like it wasn't a very satisfying way for him to get out his writing outlet and he really wanted to write movies. He eventually, his job in advertising led him to work with the National Lampoons, and he wrote some stuff for them, eventually writing one of their lesser-known movies that bombed, which was Class Reunion, which I did watch uh, last week. And I was looking up the reviews. I was like, they're some of the worst reviews ever, people <laughs> calling it like the most unfunny, worst movie ever. I thought it can't be that bad, but wow, it was really unfunny. And I, <laughs> I was kind of shocked that it was John. I mean, it was John Hughes' first cr- movie yeah. script. Pretty uneven because they were trying to spoof like horror movies. But he did go on to have a successful hit with... The first vacation movie he went on, he would go on to write the first three vacation movies. But he also wrote Mr. Mom, which was a decent hit with Michael Keaton and Terry Garr. But it was around this time that he really wanted to direct. And then he wrote a script that he was thinking would be his first directorial debut. All took place in one location. It could be 
filmed on a very Midas budget. He wrote the script called The Lunch Bunch. What a title, you know? We all remember the first time we saw The Lunch Bunch. Yeah. (laughs) And this script, which eventually would become The Breakfast Club, and it had kind of a dark tone, so it wasn't really striking studios, fancy, especially because he had written much funnier stuff. And there was some in his original script uh, that he first sold was, there was humor in there, but there was some pretty dark stuff too. And some of that dark elements we see come out in the movie that was filmed. Um, But he started working on a more humorous script uh, in hopes to sell it, which was 16 Candles. That was the movie that really ended up being his directorial debut, but also paved the way for him to immediately do breakfast club like kind of just right after filming 16 candles he went into filming the breakfast club and he would use molly ringwald and anthony michael hall who starred in 16 candles to also star in the breakfast club and follow him right into that production and hughes having met molly ringwald around 15 she was 16 when they shot the breakfast club after he met with her was just very taken with her presence and he said this before that he wrote 16 candles with her headshot over his workstation and with her in mind it was written for her So he gets the script to Universal, and they are much more excited about doing 16 Candles um, than The Breakfast Club at the time. But he did say, I want Molly Ringwald in this, and if we're doing 16 Candles before, I want her to be in The Breakfast Club. Which is just kind of nuts to think about that he had so much confidence in this woman that he hadn't worked with yet, but was just so captivated by her. And there have been many interviews over the years with Molly Ringwald and even John Hughes talking about how they had a certain understanding, a true friendship really between the two. But Hughes would actually wait until they were almost done filming 16 Candles before he officially asked Molly to be in The Breakfast Club. And when she read the original script, she absolutely loved it. And Hughes wanted her to play Allison, who's played by Ali Sheedy. But Molly, having just played Samantha in 16 Candles, who was more of an introvert and kind of quiet didn't want to play that character. She was afraid of getting pigeonholed at, you know, 15, 16. You're playing two of the same roles back to back, same director. She was smart in, in not wanting to play the same role. She wanted to go for the role of Kathy, who would later be called Claire. And Hughes listened to her, heard her arguments, and she actually had to go before the studio and state her case. She wanted to play the opposite and play, you know, this more popular girl. You know, I'm not a casting director or anything, but I I feel like that was the right decision in this case. But I do think she would have done a great job playing the role of Allison. I think I'm just so partial to Ali Sheedy in this. Justin, what do you think about that? I totally get where Hughes was coming from, Mm -hmm. you know, because Molly Ringwald, at least at that time, didn't have what I would consider to be like the stereotypical prom queen look that had already been established in like 70s and 80s movies. In some ways, I think that's what makes this movie unique because they're setting up stereotypes, but the actors themselves don't actually fall exactly into those stereotypes. And by the end of the movie, that's kind of the whole point. Even though I think uh, Miley Ringwald would have played a good Allison, I love the vibe that Ali Sheedy brings to this. The nervous energy that I think is totally Ali Sheedy's thing. You've seen her bring it to other roles. Mm Mm-hmm. And I totally get why Universal Studios was apprehensive about Breakfast Club versus 16 Candles. 16 Candles has multiple party scenes. It's more of a fun movie. It's very comedy loaded. There's a lot of tropes in there that had already been successful in movies with someone has a crush on somebody. You have conflicts. You have multiple characters. You're dealing with family. And Breakfast Club was sort of devoid of all of that. In a lot of ways... When you when you think about the Breakfast Club in terms of movies that are like this, 
it shouldn't work as well as it does. You know, it's all in one location. It's sort of set up like a play. None of these characters know each other, so there's not nothing to bounce off of stuff that we've known. There's no, like, crushing necessarily that's going on. It starts out funny and it's very quotable, but they don't go anywhere. There's very little action. It's very talky. And then the movie delves into... Um, almost like a, like a 30 minute therapy session, which (laughs) shouldn't be as interesting as it is. And I think that's the key. That's the magic of John Hughes that other filmmakers and writers just haven't been able to replicate. I know many have tried and just generally these movies get kind of old. Anytime I see a tagline where it's like, oh no, the concept is it's all in one location. It usually, uh, it's dicey. Yeah. It's like, I already tell this is a movie that, you know. (laughs) Is, is gonna like might have a strong start but then eventually it gets starts treading water because they can't keep the, they can't keep the characters interesting and it's what these characters are going through internally in the struggle of high school all this stuff starts coming out later in the movie and it feels very genuine and I think that's something that John Hughes was able to do uh, you know it's been described as teen speak you know John Hughes was 35 when he was doing these movies 16 candles and breakfast club and he said he felt always felt kind of young, but he said, you know, he was around younger people. His sister was almost like a decade younger than him. He said that, you know, whenever he would be at a concert when he was 16 and he'd look over and see a guy who was like 35, he's like, what is this guy doing here? What's his problem? <laughs> you know, and so he realized that it occurred to him like, oh, I'm like the old guy now, you know, but um, but he had a, a distinct way of like writing for younger characters that felt realistic and using language that younger people would use that didn't seem forced, that didn't feel phony. I think Breakfast Club is the best representation of this. I don't know that it's my favorite John Hughes movie, but of all the movies that he's written, I feel like the dialogue is the sharpest in this movie. I feel like the characters are the most defined. And I think it's really, even though there's teenagers in it, it's his most mature movie. And I think it's one of his most mature movies where he's dealing with the adults because in his early movies, most of the adults were just written as caricatures or just total buffoons. And then later on when he did movies with just adults like Planes, Trains, there was still some silliness there. You know, things could seem like they're going to get cheesy and it does feel that way in Breakfast Club at times, you know, but you do feel like the writing is strong enough to where you believe the characters, you believe the situations that they're in. And another reason this movie works so well is Hughes rooted it in real life. I think there's a lot that is unknown about what happened to him in high school, what were his experiences, but there are so many truths that come out in a lot of his movies, specifically The Breakfast Club, that you can't help but think each one of these characters is an extension of John Hughes in some way. And I'm sure that he's probably said that same thing before. I know that the actors kind of feel that way with just how he was able to communicate motivations and feelings to them on what their characters were going through. And by introducing all of these characters as familiar types that we all knew in high school, but not making them caricatures like what was in 16 Candles. There are ones that are specifically set up as kind of, you know, just your generic run-of-the-mill, like, jack type of person, preppy, popular girl, that sort of thing. But the beauty of The Breakfast Club is it's not about the action in the story, even though there is conflict in almost every single scene. It's about how these characters are layered and how they're not caricatures. They're not just cardboard cutouts. And with each new scene, more layers are peeled back on each character, and that's what keeps it going. That's how we slowly follow the story from straight-up comedy to 
wait, this is getting more serious. Okay, I'm completely sucked in by the time we get to a real serious moment and we're kind of jarred out of our seat like, whoa, we just took a turn. When as wordy as this movie is, John Hughes does a lot of showing, not telling, which yeah. I think is really great, especially in the beginning of this the movie. opening scene, yeah. You know, where he doesn't, uh, he, you know, he shows each student come in. He shows them this brief moment with their parents, what car they're driving. I mean, you get you get a lot of information yeah. on where these kids are coming from, benders like walking alone, yeah. you know, across the field. Uh, Brian's got his whole family bunched in the car with him. Emilio Estevez is getting a lecture by his dad. We just get a sense of like what their relationship is in minutes and as well-defined as these characters become in the script. It's kind of mind-boggling when you hear all these stories about John Hughes wrote Breakfast Club in the weekend and he wrote Ferris Bueller over like six days. Like he just pounded it out. And as prolific as his career has been, I totally believe all that stuff, but it's easy to forget all the rewriting that John Hughes did on his movies, especially on Breakfast Club. Like he went through many drafts. The original script was much, much longer and they filmed a lot of that. I read that the original cut of this was 150 minutes. On the Criterion release, they have a lot of these like, they're extended scenes, some deleted scenes. Well, some it's like of them, fifty minutes. Of yeah, footage. there's a lot of footage, and some of it uh, I can see why they cut out. It didn't seem as uh, well rounded as like uh, when they're together, all together. Like a lot of it was like isolated, like two characters, like an extension of the scene where Andrew and Allison are talking in the hallway. And I honestly think that the film is the strongest when we have all the cast together in the same room and they're playing off of each other, versus when they're isolated between two characters at a time. I like those scenes and I think it works, but I really, I get so into the big group scenes where there's like four or five people and, you know, we're doing this cross cutting and everybody's playing off of each other's energy. It really feels the most alive to me. And it also feels the most like a play in those scenes too. You think so? Yeah, definitely. I totally get where you're coming from. And I think it would feel that way more to me if this was shot in a standard, normal-looking, plain high school library. Okay. Um, I okay. haven't been to like a thousand high school libraries. I've only been to like two in my whole life. But when I watch this movie, the one thing that has always stuck out to me, even when I watched it in high school, is like it doesn't feel like a high school library to me. It looks like a college library at best, you know, because it's just very big, expansive. There's this like huge stairwell going upstairs and this like, wooden sculpture i personally love the neon blue lighting track lighting yeah. around that's my favorite i think that's what keeps the movie looking a little more cinematic and not so much like a like a single stage like flat backgrounds and it wasn't shocking me to find out that this uh library was constructed it wasn't just a, a standalone library that they found and it looked identical and they just like walked in and started shooting yeah, the school that they used was Maine North High School in De Plain, Illinois. It was not in use, but when they got there to film, they realized that the library was too small. It just wasn't going to work. So they converted the gymnasium into a library, which is why it feels so expansive and feels like a college library. I know that one aspect that Hughes and the cinematographer Tom Del Ruth wanted to create for the library was a claustrophobic suffocating feeling. I've never really gotten that from this. It feels very open to me. And I know you said that that's the reason it doesn't feel like a play to you. And I agree on that front. It doesn't have that flat kind of stage look. I think it's more about the way that the actors interact and the performance. It feels very play-like. But their interplay in 
this very like round open setting in the library is what makes it transcend from being a play into a movie and it's also not shot like most uh, plays that are turned into movies anyway while this cool looking library was being constructed the cast was doing rehearsals which was super important to john hughes to get this cast to feel comfortable for them to be playing off of each other and have this sense of familiarity but also be strangers within the same school. And during these rehearsals, Hughes kept rewriting the script based on notes that the studio or the producer had for it. And the final script that was given to the cast was really different from the original. And Hughes asked Molly Ringwald, you know, what do you think of the revisions? And while she was cool with it, she wasn't as enthused as she was about the original version. Hughes happened to mention to everybody that, you know, there were many drafts that were before this and things had just been taken out or replaced based on other people's opinions. I think it was Judd Nelson and Emilio Estevez who said, how many drafts of this script do you have? Can, is there any way we can see them? And to I, my surprise, I can't believe that John Hughes was like, yeah, sure. The next day, he brings in all of the previous drafts for the cast to look at. And together, they all went through them and cherry-picked ideas that they would like to see in the final version and kind of put it together in a way that hadn't been envisioned before. It seems like every time we do one of these movies where it's the writer-director, I'm I'm always constantly surprised at how collaborative the writer-director is with the cast, you know, just hearing that he, like, did this rewriting. John Hughes was also a very big believer in doing rehearsals. From what I've heard, other interviews with actors like modern day movies, the rehearsal process isn't allowed that much time. But John Hughes was really big on like three weeks of getting the actors together and just going over things and actors are able to improvise things that might go into the final production and rewriting the script with the actors. Um, to make scenes stronger, if something comes out with a character, a certain idea, they can get all that worked out weeks before they actually start rolling cameras. I certainly can see how that would be helpful, especially if this is your first or second movie. Nice to have everybody's getting along and they're very seasoned with the script. And by the time the cameras are rolling, it's like, oh, you guys are in sync. You know, we're getting like really, really great natural performances because you guys have been playing off each other for certain weeks. I think we talked a lot about that uh, on the Stand By Me podcast where Rob Reiner got all the actors together for multiple weeks. And by the time they were ready to shoot, they were all friends and they were playing off each other. No, Nothing felt uh, awkward anymore because they were all comfortable. And whether it's Rob Reiner or John Hughes getting so involved with the cast and ensuring that the cast feels very connected, it always makes it more believable for the audience to watch. And we'll talk more about the cast and characters in discussion, too. Let's take a break. We'll go to a clip, and we'll come back. We'll talk about that. I know it's kind of a weird time, but I was just wondering um, what is going to happen to us on Monday when we're all together again. I mean, I consider you guys my friends. I'm not wrong, am I? No. So on Monday, what happens? Are we still friends, you mean? We're friends now, that is? Yeah. Do you want the truth? Yeah, I want the truth. I don't think so. With all of us or just John? With all of you. That's a real nice attitude, Claire. 
Oh, be honest, Andy. If Brian came walking up to you in the hall on Monday, what would you do? I mean, picture this. You're there with all the sports. I know exactly what you'd do. You'd say hi to him, and when he left, you'd cut him all up so your friends wouldn't think that you really liked him. No way. Okay. What if I came up to you? Same exact thing. You are a bitch! Why? Because I'm telling the truth? That makes me a bitch? No, because you know how shitty that is to do to someone. And you don't got the balls to stand up to your friends and tell them that you're going to like who you want to like. OK, what about you, you hypocrite? Why don't you take Allison to one of your heavy metal vomit parties? <gasps> or take Brian out to the parking lot at lunch and get higher? What about Andy, for that matter? What about me? What would your friends say if we were walking down the hall together? They'd laugh their asses off, and you'd probably tell them that you were doing it with me so they'd forgive you for being seen with me. Don't you ever talk about my friends. You don't know any of my friends, you don't look at any of my friends, and you certainly wouldn't condescend to speak to any of my friends. So you just stripped to the things that you know. Shopping, nail polish, your father's BMW, and your poor, rich, drunk mother in the Caribbean. Shut up! And as far as being concerned about what's going to happen when you and I walk down the hallways of school, you can forget it, because it's never going to happen. Just bury your head in the sand and wait for your fucking prom. I hate you. Yeah? Good. OK, then I assume Alice and I are better people than you guys, huh? Us weirdos. Would you, would you do that to me? I don't have any friends. Well, if you did. No. I don't think the kind of friends I'd have would mind. I just want to tell each of you that I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't and I will not. I think that's real shitty. I think the obvious place to start here when talking about casting is Judd Nelson's John Bender. Bender, I want to say, is like everybody's like favorite character in a way. You know, he's got the most quotable lines. He really is a centerpiece of this movie. Like he's the persuasion for everybody to go off and smoke pot and get into the therapy section part of the movie. And he also is like the dominant character. Like he almost seems like he's like controlling each scene. And I'll say this, this is the only thing that bothers me about Breakfast Club. I love Judd Nelson's portrayal of John Bender, but every time I watch this movie, even when I watched it when I was younger, I feel like Judd Nelson looks like 10 years older than everybody. <laughs> and when I look at TV shows now, every teenager looks like they always look like they're about 27 in these high school shows. By today's standards, it doesn't really matter. But because John Hughes cast Anthony Michael Hall and Molly Ringwald, who are like 16 and 17 in real life, and look every bit that age. They look so young in this movie compared to Judd Nelson. I do look past that because his performance is so compelling. I know that they were looking at other actors that looked younger, like John Cusack, who I just can't fathom being in this role. And I, I saw an interview with the casting director who said, I don't think John Cusack has ever f forgiven me for like saying he's wrong for this role like he really thought he was going to get the part and I can see why they went with Judd Nelson by him looking older it does kind of help and in some ways when you when they start getting into the character of how he's lived a little bit like more of a grittier life you know with his home life and he smokes and stuff it's kind of aged him a little bit so 
in some ways, like, I guess it fits, but I do think uh, he does look much, much older than the rest of the cast. He's not as bad as Steve McQueen and the blob, though. I mean, he looked like he was straight up in his 50s yeah, yeah. playing a teen. I always gave Judd Nelson a pass because I thought of Bender as being maybe held back a couple years or at least one or two years. No, that makes sense to me. I could see that. When Judd got the script, he was captivated by the story and the interaction between the characters. And he knew for the role of Bender, he had to come in and be memorable. And being a 24-year-old former prep school guy who really had no idea what it was like to be the character of Bender, he came in in full costume with a jacket, gloves, boots, pants, the whole look he had down. I don't know if it's completely true, but it has been said that security was called on him because he looked like such a mess walking in there. I mean, he looked like Bender, like he was ready to fight at any moment. But you got to think about a character like Bender is not going to be the easiest thing to pull off. Like John Cusack, maybe he could pull that off. But if you were to just compare these two actors' headshots side by side, one clearly looks more intimidating than the other. And to prepare for this role, Judd went to a nearby school for a week, dressed in the character of Bender, and obviously the school was aware of it, but not the students, and went in and sat in on classes just to get a vibe of what it would be like to be Bender around normal high school students. It's not exactly De Niro driving a cab for a week or a month for taxi driver, but having the desire to commit yourself so much to the authenticity of a role like this, it's pretty cool of Judd Nelson. I don't know if I had the choice between I had to drive a cab in New York for a week or go back to a high school. (laughs) That'd be a tough call. And from what I understand, Judd Nelson didn't go full method, but he was definitely trying to stay in character um, in between shooting. And that got a little bit, as it always does in any movie they've ever heard, where people go a little method, uh, things got dicey. Uh, He was starting to be kind of hard on Molly Ringwald when they weren't shooting. And John Hughes, during this time, like, has said to have been very protective of Molly Ringwald. She was sort of like his muse, and he wanted to make sure that she was okay. Once Judd Nelson started getting kind of rough with her when they weren't doing takes, John Hughes actually even got mad enough to where he was, like, considering firing Judd Nelson and some of the other actors, including Molly Ringwald and... Paul Gleason, who played Vernon, were like, no, he's a good actor, like trying to sort of downplay the method part of his role. But it was just like, he's just trying to stay in character. You know, this is what he does, but it's going to be worth it. And John Hughes eventually got his temperament together and was able to go through with it. And I can see that it's a it's a vicious role. Like there's times where Bender's words and actions are so cutting. Every time I watch this movie, I'm like, how does this turn around? You know, I mean, I know that him and Miley Ringwald get together at the end. You just don't believe it when he's like cutting her down and like being so mean. And John Hughes is really good at that. You know, I think of a movie like Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which is so silly at times. But then when Steve Martin starts cutting down John Candy in the scene in the hotel room, it reminds me of some of the scenes of Bender cutting down uh, pretty much everybody in this movie at least one point or another. But he's the most vicious with Molly Ringwald because it's something that he really wants that he doesn't think that he can have or he doesn't think that he's worthy. And that's sort of bubbling up. And I think Judd Nelson does a really good job of peppering that performance where we're seeing the cracks in Bender. We're seeing that he's got this tough exterior, but his feelings can get hurt too, even though he's kind of acting like, I don't care about anything. I don't care about school. He does care. He does care what people think of him. He does care that 
you know, he doesn't fit in with these clubs. You know, he wants to be accepted as much as everybody else, as much as Brian does. His like dislike of Molly Ringwald's Claire and their interactions to me are where the most excitement happens that they have this great chemistry and I think that it has to you have to see her slowly getting sucked into Bender's world he is charismatic he's not afraid of authority you know he's not like the other people that she knows who don't like to get in trouble and so there is something a little bit of that idea of the bad boy and it sounds so cheesy but you know I think that's what the movie was going for is like her being kind of seduced by a character who like doesn't play by the rules and doesn't care even though they're in detention and they're all supposed to be doing something he's like the his first thought is like hey let's like do the opposite of everything that vernon just told us to do we're gonna like shut the door and you know we're gonna smoke we're gonna hang out we're gonna talk we're gonna break all the rules and have this actually be like a fun day um we don't have to just sit here and not do anything i'd want to give the character of claire more credit in the being seduced by him aspect. I think that she sees beneath his hard exterior. There are many times when Bender shows those cracks. If it's Claire that says something rude to him or Andrew, Emilio Estevez, who cuts him down, Bender shows that he's vulnerable, just like everybody else. And Molly Ringwald's performance here, I'm no expert, but for a 16-year-old, she's far advanced. And I went back and watched 16 Candles just to compare to this, how this was just shot the next year. It's amazing how much older she looks in this film and also how her performance in 16 Candles is is fantastic as well. But this role doesn't seem like a retread and it was just coming off the heels of 16 Candles. It just shows that John Hughes taking a chance on this girl, having seen her probably in only in one or two films before, just shows that Molly Ringwald was more than... um, a one-trick pony in the 80s. She's always been kind of a step above. Before we record for each one of these movies, I usually try to watch it three times. Uh, One, just as a first watch, like just take it in. And then the second time after I've done some research, you know, kind of look for particular things in the movie of interest. But then I usually try to do just one watch for the acting. And it's really surprised me on this watch when I'm just kind of looking at each individual character. The character of Claire feels the most one note in the beginning. And I feel like Miley Ringwald's performance really brings out the character early on, like uh, one particular scene, whenever Bender is making fun of Moye really pumps my ass. And she's <laughs> like, Moyer, you know, and Brian to me is like, I love his work. And so she's not just like into shopping and like jewelry and going to parties. Like she can relate to Brian on the level she's into high art literature. And it kind of throws a uh, bender off too, you know, cause she like corrects him, you know, I'm not who you think I am. And, and she's also like very honest, you know, she's honest about her role in the food chain of high school is at the top. But she, you know, understands there's pressure there. She also, you know, her parents are going through a divorce. They are using her to get back at each other. So she's learning manipulation. She's lived a more privileged life, like just in the beginning saying, like, I don't think I should be in here. I know I'm in detention. Like right away, it's set up like she's stuck up. And we do see a little bit of that. And I think Miley Ringwald does this great way of showing that side of Claire, but also showing a side that brings us in a warmer side that shows that she does care, you know, when she says, I think it's okay for a guy to be a virgin. She's not afraid to 
call out Bender. You know, he's like really digging in the brine and trying to give him a bunch of crap for not getting with women. And she sort of protects him in a way. This character could have been a lot more uh, one dimensional and she really gives it a lot of life. It's not surprising to me that John Hughes, because of how much he really seemed to um, be so drawn to Molly Ringwald that he would want that he wanted her in a different role, not so much in the role of of Clara, but in the role of Allison that eventually went to Ali Sheedy. It takes me a second to warm up to Claire, but really it's at her, one could say, bitchiest moment or most truthful moment when they're having the really group therapy circle session and Brian says, what happens on Monday? Are we friends? I consider you guys my friends. And Claire says, truth? I don't think so. And even though this is a harsh moment for her character, it's honest, and she's not afraid to defend her position. Even though it is mean in some ways, I admire her character for that honesty in that moment. And again, too, she's really the only person that uh, kind of like goes toe to toe with Bender. You know, she calls him out again for being a hypocrite, you know, because he's criticizing her for being honest when she's like, you would do the same thing. You're acting like we're not living in the same world. Yeah. You know, one character who's honest the entire time, that's Allison. Allison's got a lot of walls built up around her and she is physically hiding behind her clothes and her hair, but she's honest in who she is. And even though she doesn't speak for the first 30-odd minutes of the movie, her character is the one that goes through the biggest arc. She might be honest the entire time, but she goes through the biggest change. And it makes sense to me that John Hughes wanted Molly Ringwald for this role since she was such a uh, important figure and muse type. I, I wish there was another word for muse, but it definitely seemed like it. But how this played out casting-wise, I don't want to see anybody else but Ali Sheedy in this role. Molly Ringwald would have been great, but Ali Sheedy, hands down, my favorite in this movie. I agree with you. I think that she is the most defined toward the end of the movie, and she is the most honest and, and certainly the most interesting. But the first 30 minutes of this movie, I almost feel like she's the only character that's like go that where John Hughes goes over the top. I think eating the fingernails and then the Captain Crunch and like taking the the lunch meat and like tossing it up and sticking it to the thing and they're all funny things and I think that they all give every uh, the rest of the actors something to react to. It's the only uh, character that seems like wildly over the top. It falls under that stereotype of basket case, you know, is what they were going for. Someone's like so weird immediately. You're like, whoa, and that's why to me it she seems to have like the biggest arc because she goes from like this total like bizarro representation of a character and then they like by the end she's like totally talking normal and like acting normal at least by societal standards I think certainly the opposite of how she is the first like 30 minutes of the movie depending on your high school uh, experience I could see how one might experience that character is over the top Um, I don't If you ever sat by a girl who dressed in all black and ate her scabs and was maybe super religious, you might uh, see the Ali Sheedy character as completely based in reality. I just wouldn't have experienced her being goth. But that's just the cooler aspect of her. I think Ali Sheedy was going for more of a beat poet type style, arty, someone who's on a different type of plane than everybody else. Well, I definitely think that there's moments where she's like, we see that she's actually a fantastic artist and she does the 
gross but creative thing of like putting the dandruff from her head and to make snow on the top of the illustration that she's making. She's the only character, at least when I think back of my high school experience, is the least identifiable to me. But in some weird way, I find her to be the most identifiable character in the movie to my own self. But again, I think that there is a it's a like a hyper reality of her character. And maybe it's because in, in my mind of just my experiences of like even middle school and high school, um, it, it was always like the weird guy. But to me, again, going back to it's, it's a strange, it's a, it was a strange introduction to a character. <laughs> I think it's over the top, but I do love it at the same time. With your two examples, the Captain Crunch sandwich and the dandruff specifically, I mean, those things stick out, but they also play into her, going unnoticed by your parents like your parents let you leave the house with a captain crunch idea for a sandwich and that they don't pay enough attention to you to like bathe properly to me just those two elements play into the fact that she's ignored or doesn't really pay attention to herself too much she just experiences she pays attention to her art and the immediacy of things but pretty much wants to go unnoticed because that's what's comfortable to her. And my favorite interactions with her are with Andrew, though I do find their hookup at the end, the Cinderella makeover transformation is is a little odd. (laughs) Ali Sheedy's been vocal about that aspect of her character. Like, did they have to make me wearing like this sort of like purplish pink shirt underneath? Like, why would I be wearing that underneath the clothes I had on? And even when I was younger, that part of the movie, because it, it almost looks like they have her in like a weird wedding. It's like, like a some, baby doll. Yeah. Like camisole. It's, 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 it's a strange uh, transition, but I still feel that there's a realistic connection between her and Andrew and that by the end of the movie, she would be interested in him and him interested in her because she immediately calls him out. And there is something to be said about being called out. I know that that always seems like a negative, um, but I don't necessarily think that's the case all the time, especially when you're younger, because if you're only surrounded by people who are going to lie to you, I hate this terminology, but blowing smoke up your ass, it's like you you don't grow as a person and you also get a false um, sense of who you are and how you know people view you. And then when someone calls you out, you grow because you're like, oh crap, you know, and someone's being honest with you and it may hurt. And there's a difference between someone calling you out like Allison does to Andrew and then just be downright, you know, mean like Bender is. Her version is much more, um, like you said, honest and sincere, you know, and she's like, no, this is what you do. You can't think for yourself. What's your problem? Like, you obviously don't like your life and you don't like doing being a wrestler. Like, why do you do it? Just because your dad wants you to. And no one's asking Andrew those questions or like even making him think about them as a reality. It's something that is buried in his psyche that, you know, bothers him, but he's not had a conversation with somebody about it. And she's immediately the first person that's like starts drawing it out of him. And she's a, an observer. She is the key, the audience's view into just listening what the uh, what these other characters have to say. I think that's important, especially in this interplay where you have a scene where there's five people, there needs to be give and take. And because her character's written in this way, it makes sense that she quiets down and is like listening and like reacting. When she does have her chance to open up, it, again, it, she provides a lot of the comic relief of like, do you guys want to see what's in my purse? And they're like, no, absolutely not. And she just like <laughs> starts dumping everything out. Because she wants to let people in, 
but doesn't really know how. That aspect of her character opening up at the end, even noticed that as a kid that it just didn't track with her character. However, I have heard it explained in a more positive light that with her being willing to uh, receive what Claire is giving her this gift and Claire actually wanting to, in her eyes, help this other girl to be, um, I don't want to say better version, but to be more open, to not hide behind this black shit on her face, as she says. But you know what? Like Allison says, I like the black shit. And you know what? I do too. And while it, it, it sometimes it can feel like that, you know, Emilio Estevez finally sees her at the end of the movie, there's already that connection that's building. They're drawn to each other. So it's almost just like a like a cherry on top that she's, you know, this princess underneath all these black clothes. But really, there wasn't anything wrong with her to begin with. The weirdos are usually the cool ones. Yeah. When I watched this movie when I was younger, Emilio Estevez's Andrew was a character that I liked the least. Yeah. And <laughs> when I watch it now, I find him to be the most, what I think, relatable character to like, He's the closest thing to normalcy in this movie. He's the closest thing to what I think uh, a high school student actually would be in reality. He's a jock, but he doesn't want to be that aggressive guy who like gets in the fights and he has more empathy. His dad thinks empathy is weakness and that's not who Andrew wants to be. In this movie, you know, he kind of opens up and he's like, you know, with the to, to me, he has some of the best lines in the most realistic lines of like, you know, are we going to be just like our parents and actually says like my dad, I hate him, you know, like absolutely hate him. And it's a really heartbreaking scene because you do hear stories all the time about parents pushing their kids in the sports and trying to relive their high school years through their children because they see some talent in their kids that they didn't have. And Emilio Estevez gives a really subdued performance here. It's very subtle. It also too, like is coming off of movies like Repo Man, where <laughs> He's such a punk, you know, he's such a despicable character in some movies. And here it almost plays into that babyish face of his. It's like this very sensitive young man who is like, why, you know, tells Bender, like, why do you have to insult any everybody? You know, why can't we be a little more cordial here? You know, he has like this sort of like old school manners. I feel like to me, he's the most revealing character and the most sincere character um, watching it now with my old man eyes. I agree with you. And something that was lost on me when I was younger was that Andrew represented what I wanted jocks to actually be like, but never experienced them. Guys that made more of an effort, but had kindness in their heart. But one thing that I do question about Andrew is, did he find this kindness within him after he taped the guy's buns together and like humiliated him and that's why he's in detention or did he realize it before was he completely aware that he's giving in to all of his you know crappy friends around him and bullying this kid was what he's supposed to do that has he always had this enlightenment that he doesn't like what his father does to him or was it that instance that it clicked with him that I'm a dick and I need to change myself. That's always been my question about him because he is such a good guy, but was he like that before? That is a good question. And I think it that heat of the moment of like him committing this heinous act against another student, just the immediate yeah. <laughs> reflection of like 
the idea, you know, him thinking back of like, oh man, now this guy's got to go to talk to his dad and explain why he's getting picked up from school. That's such an intense moment. Like you really feel for him. Emilio Estevez does, does a wonderful job in that scene. John Hughes, I think, always had love for the underdog, had love for the kid who was smaller and couldn't quite defend himself, but was smart and had moments of of humor if you got to know him a little bit. And I think that's Brian. And I think Brian is a really well-developed character. I also think Anthony Michael Hall is like, gives the best performance of anybody in this movie. Everybody here is a good actor, but just (laughs) when you, even interviews with Anthony Michael Hall, his voice, he changes his voice for this role. Like when you see him in interviews, he has a much more, it's like a softer tone voice and like he's like re- almost like really smooth at talking in this one it's like his his voice uh almost like goes up a, an extra octave you know at times he does give these like nuances to Brian's character of like I'm not comfortable you know dealing with this situation he wants to fit in in the moment later on in a movie when he gets stoned he's it to me it's the most realistic of all of them, like, cause he's so goofy, you know, he's like hyperactive and he seems like the goofy nerdy kid, but you know, you get him stoned. And it's going to be like amplified, but I also love too, that he has this fake ID and there's the whole joke of like, you know, you have yourself like, is like 30 <laughs> something in this. He's like, why do you need a fake ID anyway? And he's like to vote, you know, and just something that 16 year old kids just don't say in some ways, I feel like breakfast club is an extension of 16 candles And I like that the Anthony Michael Hall nerd version in 16 Candles is almost like cartoony. He's a nerd, but he's got all the confidence in the world. Whereas like in this movie, he's a nerd, but he has like zero confidence. And he's just kind of like, I just am treading water the whole time, like trying to keep up with everybody here and like hopes that like fit in for this moment for this eight hours here. And then I do love that he is sort of the hero of the story, you know, that he writes this very um, profound letter to Vernon, the confidence that Brian has at the end of this movie and, and his confidence to write that, you know, all these people are behind him. And then also too, I love at the end that we have them walking through the hall at the end of the movie and Brian's leading them. In the beginning of this, we saw him sort of like looking down at the ground and at the end of the movie, he's like leading the group through the hallway and his like shoulders are up and, you know, he's got a smile on his face. He's got all the confidence in the world. Yeah, he and the character of Ali have the biggest chance to feel empowered in this movie and do by the end. The only thing that can hurt Brian is himself. And I love that his character is the one that takes the longest to actually tell his truth and say why he's in detention. He seems like he would be the first one. He's the most honest guy there. He's the most upstanding student, a parent's wet dream, as Bender says. But really, underneath his surface, you find out that he beats himself up. And giving this much depth and seeing how much pain that this kid is truly in just elevates the nerd character to a level we hadn't seen before in movies. I I also just find the scenes with Brian to be among (laughs) the funniest too. His interplay between him and Bender is just uh, some of my favorites. The whole, you know, Niagara Falls, you know, were you motioning, (laughs) were you or were you not motioning to Claire? I just love all their interplay together. Yeah, Brian's adorable. He's who the audience gives the most sympathy to. And also I love that he's uh, the one guy who's like friends with Carl the janitor. You know, even though he is embarrassed by it, 
you see that's the kind of person that Brian is. Doesn't feel above anybody. Bender knows Carl's name because Bender's like, you know, I think in his mind he's just like, I could, I'll probably end up being a janitor at a high school. But Brian actually is sincerely is friendly with people. And we see that Carl's character is actually not the stereotyped janitor, you know, who like isn't thoughtful. He's using like bigger words and like you get that you immediately get the sense of like, oh, this is why him and Brian have a connection. You know, they're yeah. smart guys. Yeah. And I love that when Carl gets crap from Bender, Carl pushes back and actually like kind of schools them all on what it is to be a janitor and like going through their lockers yeah. and like looking at their letters and everybody's just like, oh my God, what? And at the end of that, Bender's like, Okay, this guy's kind of cool, yeah, actually. Yeah, he's just like, yeah, you, you got me. You got us all. <laughs> and I heard, too, that John Capellos, who plays Carl, tried to stay away from the main cast as much as possible to keep up that space, that distance between what would be a janitor and the students at the school. I don't know how much truth it was to this, too, that he also uh, slept in the janitor's closet. Like, I don't know if he went full method for this role, but um, certainly gave himself over to it. It's a weird way to get into the role of a janitor. I guess so. Yeah. I don't know. I heard that. Who knows? Maybe he was exaggerating. Yeah. I'm going to choose to believe it, though. I think the best scene with Carl, though, is him also schooling Vernon whenever he extorts him for money for <laughs> like not uh, letting people know that he was like going through like private files. And also, too, kind of calls him out on, you're blaming everything on the kids of why you're unhappy with your life. and you got into this with with the wrong intentions of being a facilitator of the youth. And to, and to jump to Vernon here, uh, played by Paul Gleason, man, when I was younger, I like, I hated uh, Principal Vernon. And now I'm almost the same age as Principal Vernon. It kind of freaks me out <laughs> that uh, when I'm watching it now, I see that he, to me, is one of the few adults that, John Hughes doesn't, at least in the movies that John Hughes did where it involves teenagers, had an adult that seemed, I think, not such a cartoon, not such a, a caricature of idiotic adults. Like Vernon seems very real and he also makes some pretty good points. I mean, he's an extreme bully and he's like extremely inappropriate with the students as far as like his style of being a disciplinarian wouldn't fly you know in, no. in today's standards no. but he does have several scenes especially when he's talking to Bender and he's like you know you go look up John Bender in five years and you'll see how funny he is it's really cutting because he has seen kids cycle through the school he's seen a million Benders he's seen a million Andrews he he's kind of burnt out but at the same time he feels like, you know, he should get more respect. He feels like he's earned it. And in some ways you could say that he has. I mean, I know that's making me sound like a total square here, but you do get to a point where you're just like, oh my God, what is wrong with teenagers? Like, why did you just throw that at my car when I was your age? I was like scared to talk to adults. And But I think that's the way Vernon feels. You know, he's just like, these kids turned on me, you know, like when I was, when I was their age, I followed all the rules. I played by the books and why does this kid who's 18 like Bender get to like just like break every rule, you know, and everybody thinks he's like funny and cool and it pisses him off because, you know, he never got to do that. He followed everything to a T and he's unhappy with his life. It's a very tiny role, but I think Paul Gleason does more with this role than I think is humanly possible. Like he really, again, takes these moments uh, like with him and Bender in that closet and like Oof. it's a terrifying scene in some yeah. ways where he's like 
threatening bender like i'm gonna fight you outside of school one day you know i'm just like waiting for the moment you know that i can get you alone and like i'm not gonna get fired from my job and it's a it's a pretty raw moment it really is yeah and he couldn't have been more different from his character on set. Everybody really loved having him there, and he was encouraging of all of the younger actors. He'd been around for so long in the acting world at that point. But I'm with you growing up that Principal Vernon was one of the worst people you could experience in a school, an absolute nightmare. And looking at this movie now, you see just how salty and jaded he is that he has no want for these kids to get anything out of detention to write this essay clearly he doesn't care he kind of abandons all of these kids even when he locks bender up in the closet he abandons him there he doesn't go back and check on him the kids have already left the room by the time he finds the letter that brian's written and in some ways the way that principal vernon acts mirrors how these kids are acting but just the older version with less options. He puts on this front, this facade of confidence, and he resents these kids for having more chances than he does at this point in his life. I don't know. That's just my take on it. Obviously, he's not the same as these kids, but I would be curious to know what Principal Vernon was like in high school and to see how he ended up being this crab ass that he is now. Yeah, the man clearly has some issues. (laughs) Yes. So outside of really great young actors and dialogue that John Hughes is known for. He starts building a reputation for using very good music in his movies, uh, very hip music, at least at the time it was. He was a big fan of like British New Wave music. If anything, this movie is remembered for the hit song by Simple Minds, Don't You Forget About Me. It hit number one on the Billboard charts and has been playing on radio for like 35 years. I mean, anytime I'm on any sort of like drive where I'm deciding to put the radio on, which isn't that often anymore, but for the last 30 something years, anytime I've been in the car, if you've had the radio on at some point in time, (laughs) don't you forget about me is going to play over. And, you know, I still hear it at the grocery store. Maybe nowadays, like people who are younger, they don't associate the song with The Breakfast Club. Man, it's still, I don't get sick of it. It's It's a fantastic song. I have not aged out of liking this song either. And in doing research for this episode, learning that the lyrics for this song were coming out of where... Brian says, you know, in the movie, are we going to be friends on Monday? Thinking about the song in that way. I mean, it's, it is really obvious, but just the weight behind it. I mean, it, it kind of, this sounds so cheesy. It makes me sound like such a wiener, but I kind of got teary eyed when I, when I listened to it the next time. And I've heard this song I a thousand times in my life to still have that effect. And yet another movie that does the bookend where they play it in the beginning of the movie and at the end of the movie yeah which i am always a fan of this is a banger of a soundtrack i mean depending on your taste right not only the simple mind song but wang chung fire in the twilight my lord that is a great one there's an eg daily song before that oh we are not alone that song come on this soundtrack is just littered with great song songs by artists and then the Keith Forsey instrumental music that's layered throughout the movie is also on the soundtrack and if you know the movie really well listening to the soundtrack you immediately think of those scenes it's just so ingrained I'll tell you I can't get enough Wing Chung ever and <laughs> 1985 I mean they have a song in the soundtrack they also composed the soundtrack and songs for the movie To Live and Die in LA that also came out in 1985 and a fantastic 
uh, opening song for that movie as well as other songs in that. But uh, not a band I don't think that gets uh, – I mean, I just never hear anybody talk about Wang Chung. And maybe because it's like a goofy sounding name and then they had the everybody Wang Chung tonight. Maybe there's two associated with that because going and listening to so much of their music lately, it's like, God, how are these guys like not <laughs> talked about more? You know, well, we're giving them airtime right yeah, now. Yeah. One fun thing to do with the music in this movie is paying attention to the lyrics and what's happening on screen, because many times it's directly speaking about something that's happening on screen. And in the way that John Hughes does this, I think that it's very earnest and thoughtful and really shows how involved he wanted the music to be in the film. I think just about every John Hughes movie, he has a character who's either lip syncing a song or like pretending like they're playing it, like Bender doing the guitar part, (laughs) pretending he's playing along with instrumental that's, it's playing in the movie, but it's not actually being played live. And of course we've got both uh, Uncle Buck and Plain Strains and Automobiles where John Candy's like miming the song, you know, and singing oh it, God. playing along. Uh, and, you know, of course, Ferris Bueller singing uh, two songs on the float in the Chicago parade. Clearly, music was very important to John Hughes. So important, in fact, that for his lead actors, he made mixtapes for these guys. Not just, you know, this is some great music I'm listening to you right now. But no, he made them for the characters this is the music that your character would listen to how more involved can you get than that yeah i think that's a genius way to especially for a young person saying you know here's here's the music that your character listens to because at that time in your life that's like you have the most amount of time to seek out and find the kind of music that you feel passionate about that like represents kind of like where you're at at that moment and wasn't it uh, Cameron Crowe did the same thing for the actors for Almost Famous? Yeah. Really great method. I wonder if he got the idea from John Hughes. I wouldn't be surprised. Now, this movie was released in theaters uh, when I was a little kid, so I don't really remember this being in theaters, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But I do remember it being a big part of being on television a ton when I was, you know. So much in middle school and high school. I was kind of surprised to see that the movie made so much money at the box office Uh, for a $1 million movie. It made 58 million at the box office. That's pretty good, especially considering, um, and we talked about this in our Reitman tribute episode about when they were doing animal house, they changed it to college instead of high school because young kids, it's rated R they're 17. They're not going to be able to get in. So I wonder with this movie, if it was college people who are just out of high school, went to see it, or if, you know, high school kids convinced their parents. I'm curious of how many high school kids went to actually see it and if that was, you know, what caused it to be a success at the box office or not. But the reception to this movie, critically, the movie was pretty good. John Hughes was complimented a lot in a lot of reviews saying, you know, he was really good at teen speak. You know, this wasn't your standard high school movie where people acted immature. You know, he actually like delved in the problems that were beyond surface level stuff And also that for a movie that, you know, essentially just took place in one day in one location, that um, it was actually, you know, a lot going on in the movie. But this definitely, I think, paved the way for an audience being ready, like for Weird Science and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. By the end of the 80s, John Hughes's name was like linked to movies about teenagers and what they were really feeling. So before we move on to our picks of the week, I just want to hit on one last thing with The Breakfast Club. 
And we talked a little bit about this when we did our episode on weird science and not to rain on anybody's 80s parade with just about any 80s movie you watch now through a 2022 lens. Um, there's certain things that are going to come up that just aren't acceptable these days or just seem yeah. like in bad taste. And with John Hughes, um, several of his movies, I think, have these issues. You know, Weird Science had a few, a lot of misogyny in that movie. And in Sixteen Candles, depiction of Asian Americans, I think Sixteen Candles has gotten the most um, flack and articles have been written about that movie. When we picked Breakfast Club and I did my first watch and kind of looking at it, through that lens, I was thinking like, oh man, is this going to be one that we probably shouldn't do? And there's certainly some things in here, especially it seems like with John Hughes, um, I think with all his movies, diversity is non-existent. I think most movies now that take place in high schools, like, you know, diversity is present and characters aren't just so stereotyped. Yeah, with a lot of 80s movies about teens, many John Hughes movies dealing with teens, there's a certain undercurrent of homophobia that's kind of all throughout them. Not constantly present, but there's an occasional F-bomb drop. And The Breakfast Club is one of those. It's not littered throughout the movie, but it's certainly still present. There's one with the F-bomb written on Bender's locker and then a noose right under that. I mean, that's that's a pretty harsh one. But as always we say on this podcast, you have to consider the time period in which this movie came out. This was 85 in the middle of an increasingly large amount of homophobia towards the LGBT community. I mean, the T aspect of that was like non-existent as far as like mainstream culture anyway. So we really have to think about where we were and that, you know, John Hughes, we're not saying John Hughes was homophobic. I, I don't think that that's, I mean, I have no idea, you know, if that's true or not, but I think it's the same thing we talked about this with Monster Squad. When you're writing for teens, you're writing how teens speak. And even when I went to high school in the 90s, I mean, homophobia was everywhere. In the 80s, it was massive, too. And you're writing the way that teens speak. They're going to drop the F-bomb. They're going to say things that are homophobic because it was predominant in culture. So you look back at this movie and you can find these problematic elements of it or cringeworthy moments or be like, hey, nobody that wasn't white lived in uh, Shermer, Illinois, I guess. You have to think about who's writing it, what point of view they're coming from. All we can say is that things have progressed over the last 37 years and where we are now is um, a much better place to be in i totally agree well let's stop there we'll uh come back for some final thoughts on breakfast club but let's get into our picks of the week so we went the actor route this time i chose uh emilio estevez in judgment night but Lindsay, you uh picked a movie that i haven't seen since i was in college and that's ali sheedy and high art what can you tell me about that movie well, first and foremost, this is a wonderful addition to the 90s independent film boom and one of the most important additions to LGBT cinema, especially for the time period. Lisa Cholodenko, who wrote and directed High Art, went into production on this film when she was still in grad school, which seems just crazy to me. This film is about two neighbors whose paths never cross until a leak in the ceiling. A tiny water leak unlocks this floodgate of which neither are prepared. Sid, played by Rada Mitchell in her first American film, works for a high-end photography magazine, Frame, diligently trying to move herself up in the ranks. Being the taking-care-of-business kind of gal she is, Sid goes to solve that leaky ceiling issue and, and meets her upstairs neighbor, Lucy, played by Ali Sheedy. 
Sid discovers Lucy is a renowned but semi-retired photographer who abandoned the scene because she felt trapped, loved the attention, but couldn't handle the impact. Lucy is also a raging heroin addict. In some ways, this is a coming-of-age story, or at least a story of attempted growth. Sid goes from slightly naive to learning some hard truths in a short amount of time. Lucy is jarred out of her comfortable, normalized, unhealthy lifestyle when she meets Sid, someone who isn't like those in her friendship circle. Sid is captivated by Lucy as a person and also by her photography, and she wants to pitch Lucy's work to her bosses for an upcoming issue of Frame. Cholodenko shows a lot of forethought in her writing by illustrating both angles of Sid's fascination, ensuring she's not using Lucy to climb the corporate ladder. As the story unfolds, so does the intoxicating relationship between the two. Sid is drawn to Lucy's world above her apartment, this sleepy heroin haze of it all. It's the hangout, decadent in the lazy, art sort of loft way, people just always around and hanging out. Lucy's longtime partner, Greta, played by Patricia Clarkson, a washed-up German actress who's always there and possibly the most consumed by drugs. It's obvious Lucy has become tired of Greta's constant existence on some ethereal drug plane, but she's an enabler, and it just is the way it is. Similarly, Sid's become accustomed to her man-boy-type boyfriend. She's settling for him, content, but looking straight through him, especially once she feels excited for the first time in what seems like a really long while after she meets Sid. High art is about connection, addiction, and the intensity that can result from life's curveballs. Resentment also plays a role. You guys are so glamorous, Lucy says as she walks into her apartment where her closest friends are doing her drugs. Sid's introduction into the mix causes Lucy to reevaluate, and she likes that. It's unexpected. But addiction is a monster which is hard to shake, especially when it just surrounds you. Unlike a lot of drug-related movies, this aspect is not glamorized or made to look repulsive. It simply just is. It's a way of life. And even though the movie's title is a double entendre, meaning either, you know, fancy high-class art or high, as in drugs, art, a movie with this title better be beautiful. And the cinematography and production design are realistically detailed, resulting in images which are downright breathtaking, familiar, and purposeful all at once. Sure, it's the haziness of what drugs do to the mind, but it also doubles for seductiveness in all forms. Softly composed frames, slow camera movements, lighting that envelops, naturally sweaty at times, and many, many moments of nonverbal communication. It all feels like documentary portraiture. There's also a lot of one takes, and I don't think I noticed these before because you're so engrossed in what's happening in the frame. The story sucks you into the world just as Sid is drawn to Lucy in her upstairs world. Lengthy one take scenes are risky when you have a small budget, so it's even more impressive to me that these scenes work so well. The photographs used all throughout the film were donated by professional photographers, including the likes of Nan Golden. Please look up her work if you're unfamiliar. I know it from college, but um, you can really see her influence all over the film here and there. With a steadfast, confidently told story swimming in the sea of richness and realism and a cloud of lust and foreboding, this hypnotic heroin use, it's high art's lead actors who ground the film in complete authenticity. I read that Cholodenko claims to have never seen The Breakfast Club, but knew of Ali Sheedy. So when Sheedy contacted her after someone gave her a copy of High Art's script, Cholodenko was dumbfounded. Without going too deep into this, Sheedy's personal experience with addiction fueled her gusto for seeking out this part and absolutely nailing the audition she did for Cholodenko. There's not one moment where Sheedy is not 100% committed to Lucy. You really do sense the connection. There's one moment in the film where Sid and Lucy go out to the country for a weekend and Sid tells Lucy that she doesn't want them using while they're having this kind of romantic getaway together. 
And according to Cholodenko, the scene was difficult for Shidi, but not because she didn't understand her motivation, but it churned up her own feelings regarding her battle with addiction. And I think that's why the scene feels so real and uncomfortable, like you're a voyeur. And on a more superficial level, I remember when I first saw this movie feverishly combing the internet to see if Shidi was actually gay because I really bought her realism hook, line, and sinker here. Rada Mitchell also brings her A-game to the role of Sid. She does this delicate balance of being educated and pretentious, but with an underlying sense of being totally naive. If you listen to our podcast, you know that Justin and I bring up what actors do with their eyes. And Rada Mitchell's performance comes out so strongly in this way, as well as her subtle body movements and in her deliberately unsure way of expressing Sid's curiosity and growing confidence. The supporting cast is solid in their isolated worlds, Lucy with her longtime familiar friends and their languid ways of addiction, and Sid's world of high-end art, the coldness and understandably uppity nature. Her boyfriend, played by Gabriel Mann, is exactly what's needed for this role. I'd be surprised if anyone is rooting for Sid to stay with him, um, because he delivers a portrayal of an insecure dude trying to mold a perfect girlfriend very effortlessly. Patricia Clarkson, who's really blown up over the last 20 years since this movie, plays Lucy's washed-up German actress girlfriend I mentioned earlier. She absolutely loses herself in the role of Greta. She's so in character, and it's during one fleeting moment of soberness when it really hits me. Holy crap, like, this woman is amazing. Her theatrical yet subdued because of drugs nature adds humor and depth and reinforces her character's significance in the story's entire picture. Before signing off here, the music of high art is worth mentioning. It was done by the group Shudder to Think, who dreamt up this light trip-hop vibe encompassing the movie's sexy and seductiveness, giving it this urgency while not letting you pass a certain point until the movie's ready. The music blends seamlessly into the entire picture. In remembering high art was a smaller, budgeted movie, I'm really blown away by how beautiful and effectively moving it is. When this is your feature film debut, you're starting off on the right foot. Cholodenko's gone on to direct TV shows uh, like The L Word and the miniseries that, man, really spoke to me. I talked about it in one Murray moment, Olive Kittredge. She also directed a pick of the week that I did a while back, Laurel Canyon, um, as well as a really fantastic movie, The Kids Are All Right. Sometimes I feel like this era of indie films and gay films are forever gone, but movies like High Art immortalize an important time period of storytelling. It ain't the happiest movie in the world, but it stays with you. And just to give proper respect here uh, to my friend, my first lengthy relationship with another woman, my old friend CJ uh, was the one who showed this movie to me. Uh, We deconstructed it time and time again. She passed away not too long ago, but I tell you, without her influence... I wouldn't know about these movies until I was much older, and uh, finding this movie when I was 17, 18 really affected me, and it's nice to watch it now, 20 years later, and and realize really how fantastic of a movie this is. Yeah, this is one I really need to rewatch. I think I saw this um, like on the Independent Film Channel back in the day, and I don't really remember too much, so this is bringing back some of the uh, scenes in my head, you talking about this, but I really want to uh, catch this again. Um, is this streaming anywhere right now? Or? It's not streaming, okay. but you can borrow it sometime. All right, I want. will do that. Yeah. I think it's time for you to tell me about uh, a movie with a totally different vibe starring Emilio Estevez, Judgment Night. So I picked Judgment Night because uh, every now and then there's uh, movies that come into my mind where you know you have one character from one movie and then that movie ends and then you know you can 
sort of imagine like the character picks up in this other movie that's unrelated, even though it's the same actor. And I kind of feel that way with Judgment Night. Emilio Estevez is Andrew Clark in The Breakfast Club. Um, I picture uh, him graduating in The Breakfast Club and then 10 years later, you could see this same character in Judgment Night. Emilio Estevez and four friends in Judgment Night are going to go to see a boxing match in downtown Chicago. They all appear to be from middle to upper class upbringings. Uh, we've got Emilio Estevez and then his younger brother played by Steven Dorff. And Jeremy Piven plays a sleazy friend. He's like developed really well over the years. I think this is like the early makings of him working that Ari character that he did in Entourage. And then rounding out the four friends with Cuba Gooding Jr., the movie is pretty much like a straight-up thriller. They're headed to this fight downtown in a very fancy RV that the Jeremy Piven character has manipulated into borrowing for the evening. But they're going to miss the fight because traffic is so bad, so they decide to get off the freeway and end up in a really, really desolate and dangerous neighborhood. Not too long after that, they hit somebody by accident. That person turns out to also have been shot and has a bag of money with blood on it. And soon after that, the uh, owners of that money that appear to be a small gang led by Dennis Leary chase them throughout the rest of the movie. And the movie becomes sort of a fight for your life survival type film. This movie has a very strong beginning. It was one of those scripts that we've talked about in many, many episodes where it was much darker in tone. It was much more well thought. And then it went through all these different writers and to try to make it more of a broad thriller, Hollywood thriller. Um, even John Carpenter, I think, did one of the passes on this movie. And in doing so, I think that the the rest of the film is where it starts to sort of spiral out of control because with so much of them running away from uh, Dennis Leary and his gang, this sort of uh, push and pull between the characters of like, are they being manly enough? And I think that the movie tried to have more of a stance on what it was trying to say, but it kind of got caught underneath the mess of this cat and mouse game that goes on for about 45 minutes. For the most part, this movie is a pleasant enough thriller. I, I do wish that there was more character development in the beginning, so that way we would feel more for the characters later on. But there is some nice dynamic shifts in the characters once they start getting into trouble. Um, I think this movie was pitched as Deliverance in the City, which I definitely feel like I can see where they were going for. I don't know if that the execution was as well as uh, intended. This movie did remind me how much I like Dennis Leary. I think if you would have had a villain who was much darker in tone and not cracking wise and not sort of making light of some of the situations, the movie could have been really, really drab because there's a really, you know, good, like I said, 45 minutes to an hour where they're just kind of running for their lives. Keep in mind what I said. If you decide to watch this movie, keep in mind uh, Andrew Clark from Breakfast Club graduates and then 10 years later, you know, he gets married, he has a newborn and he's going to go out on a night with his friends and his younger brother who, you know, we didn't hear about in Breakfast Club. It, it makes the movie a, a lot more fun. Uh, one of the main reasons why I wanted to do this movie as well is that much like you said with the soundtrack of High Art and the soundtrack of Breakfast Club, I think this movie is more remembered for the soundtrack than it is the actual film. And when this movie came out, the soundtrack was kind of a hit. It was very influential. I loved it so much. Before the soundtrack, the merging of rock and rap was kind of limited to like Aerosmith and Run DMC. This was the first experimentation of 
rock and rap, and the outcome is like really fantastic. The idea was to take rock group and rap groups and have them go into the studio and do songs together. Uh, the pairings are totally excellent. I, I highly recommend if you if you don't decide to watch Judgment Night the movie, um, if you've never listened to the soundtrack, that would be the thing to focus on. Just the the pairings on this album. We've got Helmet and House of Pain. Teenage Fan Club and De La Soul doing the song Fallen, which I think is the the best uh, song on the album, and it's the opener and closer of the movie. Um, we've got Living Color and Run DMC, Biohazard, Nonix, Slayer and Ice-T, Faith No More, Booyah Tribe, Sonic Youth and Cypress Hill, Mud Honey, Sir Mix-A-Lot, another great song is Missing Link by Dinosaur Jr. and Delta Funky Homo Sapien. We've got Therapy and Fatal, Pearl Jam and Cypress Hill closing out the album. All the songs are good. It's definitely one to revisit or if you've never heard it, check it out. I know it seems like I'm pushing the album more than the movie on this particular pick of the week and I actually am. But when it's all said and done, Judgment Night is a it's a pretty standard thriller. There's enough there to keep your interest perked. And again, like I said, uh, the first 30 minutes are, are where it's at. And just keep in mind, it's Andrew Clark. He's, he's trying to go out on a night on town with his friends. He's been out of high school. He moved out of the suburb of Shermer, Illinois, not too far away into another suburb of Chicago. I, I think there's a connection there, too, because both movies took place in Chicago. I love your connections with this movie. And I haven't seen it, but I do remember the soundtrack, so I'm one of those. But you've made this movie sound really exciting, and I had no idea that it was such a thriller. And all of the cast in this movie is so impressive. Dennis Leary is a bad guy. Kind of into that. And the director, Stephen Hopkins, uh, after uh, Judgment Night, did a really great mid-90s thriller with Blown Away with Jeff Bridges and Tommy Lee Jones and uh, The Ghost in the Darkness with uh, Val Kilmer and Michael Douglas. That's a pretty good one. Um, But before that, he uh, did Predator 2, which I just revisited not too long ago and is actually a lot better than I remember it being. And he did a, a thriller in the 80s. He's an Australian director, and he did this thriller called Dangerous Game that I was able to track down on YouTube and I watched that the other day and it's got a very uh super new wave vibe happening with just the way people are dressed and it's got kind of a fun uh goofy opening but it's basically like a group of friends it's similar to Judgment Night but a group of friends decide they're gonna break into this mall because one of them's like a computer whiz he knows how to break into security systems but then they're menaced by a maniac cop throughout the night <laughs> in a mall i want to have a movie night right now and watch all of these so those are our picks of the week high art and judgment night here's your murray moment chicks dig me because i rarely wear underwear and when i do it's usually something unusual i think i need a root canal i'm sure i need a long slow There are a ton of takeaways one can siphon out from The Breakfast Club. Who you were in high school influences what you take away from the film, whether a brain, a jock, a basket case, a princess, or a criminal. Well, one time in 2007, Billy had the chance to give some perspective to the students of Manhattan High School in Manhattan, Kansas. 
Let me backpedal for a second. I've talked about an influential, pretty much a pioneer of improvisational comedy, actor, director, instructor, Del Close, in previous Murray moments, most notably in episode 40 of The Blob. From Bill Murray, John Belushi, Chris Farley, Stephen Colbert to Tina Fey, and every other big-name comedian you've heard of, Del Close helped shape their comedy. And in 2007, in his memory, Del was to be inducted into his former high school's Wall of Fame. His school reached out to another of Dell's highly successful students and also a then-resident of Manhattan, Kansas, and older brother of Bill, Brian Doyle Murray, to accept the honor on Dell's behalf, who'd passed away in 1999. Brian was more than happy to accept the honor. Whenever I've come across one of Dell's students discussing him, there's just no question on how much they appreciated him in their lives, and Brian was one of those and was all aboard for this ceremony. But a month before the induction was to be held at Manhattan High, Brian calls and says he's going to be stuck in a production and won't be able to get away, but follows that bummer up with, but if it's okay, I've asked my brother Bill if he'll do it, and he said yes. In true Billy form, he didn't confirm with anyone beyond Brian. As Bill was expected to not bail on this event, the Alumni Association set up a punch and cookies pre-induction get-together, but Bill didn't attend. That didn't mean he wasn't in the high school, though. Instead, He went to the gymnasium and watched the girls' basketball game. According to some onlookers, he got fairly into it, even yelling at the ref from the seats. It was after the game when Bill delivered his speech on behalf of his old friend and teacher, Del Close. Wearing the Manhattan school colors, a fresh pair of Midwestern Wranglers, and a ball cap, Bill spoke from his heart, off the cuff, in just the way Del would have expected. I thought about what it meant to come to a high school, Bill said to a packed gymnasium. Four years is really too long. High school is weird, he went on to say. There are all kinds of groups, and they don't necessarily work together. They're sort of on their own. They're separated. They're intimidated. They're wary of each other. Making the connection to the Knights honoree, Bill said Dell taught him how to work within a group, and to think about his place within that group, and how to make those around you better. When you work together, you can accomplish anything. Things you don't even believe you could accomplish, he said. The divisiveness in high school is a real thing, and if you were on the lower rung of the social structure, you're even more aware of this. And sometimes it's hard to not be held down in the moment, to remember that high school isn't the end-all be-all. One thing I've learned is that there are certain people who peak in high school, Bill said. And in speaking about Dell and other Wall of Fame inductees, he said, These honorees are not the ones who peaked in high school. How did somebody who wasn't the coolest guy in school, like, I'm sure Del Close wasn't the coolest guy in high school, how could he have gone on to be an internationally famous director of theater coming out of this room right here? He planted that seed of what he learned in high school and went elsewhere, Bill said of Del. He made it more. One thing he taught me, Bill added, was there's a way to treat people. And as I've grown older and a little more aware, I've realized it's called being cool. When I was in high school, being cool was a comparative thing, but that's not it at all. It's not who's president, not who's the star player. It's who treats people with respect, no matter what their status is. Bill continues on with this stream of thinking, making me feel real Breakfast Club vibes. Your friends might be who they are in the moment in high school, but they may be very different later on, because hopefully you come to realize it's the people who are present, who show you respect, who look you in the eye, spoke directly to you. That's who you need to keep around you. Making people feel uncomfortable or out of place isn't a way to live your life, whether in high school or beyond. If you can keep that inside of you for life, that's cool, Bill said. That's not how you dress. It's not the music you listen to, not where you live or what you drive. That's who you are, and that's cool. And that's who Del Close was and how Bill Murray continues to be. And also what I hope the brain, the basket case, the jack, the princess, and the criminal are at the end of The Breakfast Club, too. 
these kids who came together and erased boundaries the divisiveness of high school created between them. It also makes sense that Bill's a fan of the movie. We've been discussing this entire episode. He considered it, quote, an American gem, an amazing film, as important as any of Marty Scorsese's movies. It's just a real fucking piece, he said. So, Bill, thanks for serving up some real talk to these high schoolers. Del Close would have been real proud, and I hope all of the outsider kids of Manhattan took his words to heart. I don't think we ever had anybody as cool as Bill Murray speak at our high school. Yeah, no, me neither. Well, thank you for that Murray moment. Of course. So before we close things out on The Breakfast Club, a few final thoughts. Uh, For starters here, Lindsay, what do we think happened on Monday with these kids? Did they ignore each other? Did they acknowledge each other in the hallways? In the magical world that is The Breakfast Club, where you have kids that are willing to be that open and it just takes one day for that to happen, yeah. I want to believe that they acknowledged each other. I want to believe that Bender and Claire actually became an item. Yeah, I want to believe. I, I think that Brian, there's some moment there where in, on Monday that Andrew pulls him aside. Or, or maybe there's a lunchroom scene where Allison comes and, you know, what, wouldn't it be cool if they all like sat at the same lunch table or something? God, yes. I mean, I this movie didn't need that ending. But yeah, I want to believe that that happened. And then an even more fantastical <laughs> high school movie where yeah. they uh, they all sit at one table and then it just everyone else in the lunchroom starts sitting next Stop. to different people that they wouldn't sit next Stop to. Stop it. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, I'm getting chills over here. Yeah. I wish that would happen. <laughs> uh, the other thing, we did this with Stand By Me, you know, the character that we relate to the most. Uh, and we both came up with the same character, Allison. Yeah, easily. Which... <laughs> I think I said this earlier, her character seems the most over the top, but at the same time, I identify with her the most as far as, you know, being the more outsider person, you know, amongst people who are so-called normal. Even right down to her emptying out her bag, you know, to invite people into her life. Now, I never emptied out my bag in front of people, but there were definitely moments in high school where... You know, you leave something open or you want someone to see something to ask you a question to invite them that you're sneakily inviting them into your life, but not actually saying it. And just feeling like a total outsider completely felt Allison all the way. I don't know if I had quite as bad of a dandruff problem. Another thing about this movie, as far as the actors are concerned, is that um, and I think this happens with certain films that become these landmark memorable movies that go on for years and years they were so good in this movie that they kind of got trapped in a time capsule like it was hard for audiences to see them as adult actors and I'm sure that has to be frustrating as an actor when you're ready to make the leap I think uh, most of them were Anthony Michael Hall was definitely after Weird Science you know did that when he was like I gotta stop doing these John Hughes like teen movies and he did a couple other teen movies but tried to do more mature type roles and same thing with Molly Ringwald and Emilio Estevez certainly tried I think he went down the path of like I'm gonna really try to break free from this you know but they all kind of got stuck in this cycle of you know, people just want to, they just picture them as like the teen heartthrobs of the 80s, like that, you know, they couldn't get, they couldn't get out from underneath the shadow of it. I think Judd Nelson probably got hit the hardest with that one. In an interview, I remember Ali Sheedy saying about 10 years after the movie came out, she just couldn't believe people were still talking about it, that it was relevant. And she kind of felt like, God, isn't this 
movie ever going to stop following me? But in more recent years has really come to realize how special it is that this movie has retained its importance uh, through people that saw it when it came out and newer generations of people that discover it. And that's kind of what it seemed like with all of the cast is that they really have realized the importance of this film and, and what it meant to so many people. So much so that they have done more than a few uh, cast reunions too. It seems also too in these reunions that they've done where they've kind of talked to each other, it seems like they've remained friends or at least stayed in contact throughout the years and followed each other's work. Yeah, I think when you do a movie like this, and I think the way that John Hughes did this production, like they all really did become friends and the experience they went through was obviously very powerful. Yeah, it really seems to be the case. Well, we hope you've enjoyed our episode on The Breakfast Club. Happy anniversary, Justin. Yeah, happy anniversary. Four years we've been doing this. Just totally insane. Where does the time go? Into all these episodes, Yeah, really. It really does. Yeah. (laughs) So we're going to take a break. We'll be back on June 14th. We've got some great movies planned. Uh, The first movie back will be James Cameron's Aliens. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reaper. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.